Hi everyone, and it's competition time. Who wants to win a copy of episode 19 script, the one that we're releasing this week? There are three scripts available, so you could be entered into a draw if, number one, if you're a Patreon member, number two, if you're a member of the True Crime Fix discussion Facebook page, and number three, if you follow on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. As I'm running a little dry on case suggestions, all you need to do is find the post pinned to the top of any of the social media pages, screenshot the fact that you have subscribed to the podcast, and give me a case suggestion. Please keep in mind the podcast's ethos, so no serial killers please. Closing date will be Sunday the 29th of September at 5pm Greenwich Mead time. Winners will be drawn on Sunday on the respective platforms and scripts will be posted out on Monday, assuming that I get your information straight away. Good luck to everyone. As you may be aware, True Crime Fix is now on Patreon, and I've just posted the second bonus content to the $5 level. So if you want to come and join me, and take a walk through the key areas in the Rana Faruqi case, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash podcast. That is www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. If you do, you'll be able to get your fix a little bit earlier. Just like Jennifer and Carol who have joined since the last episode. Thank you for your assistance in keeping the podcast going and free to the masses. So that's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. And now onto this week's episode. The investigation into the high school massacre is... Parkland High School massacre. At least 14 dead, 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting. That includes a suspected gunman. Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. We will discuss the whys the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon. And please subscribe to Active Shooter. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hi everyone. 
and welcome to our 18th case together. Before we go any further, please, if you've liked the show so far, remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will download for you upon release. The case this week takes me to a little Lincolnshire town that I know very well, having spent a lot of time there with one of the moderators of the Facebook group, Stuart Bow. But despite all of the time that I have spent there, I have never heard of this case. I was just looking through a couple of books that I'd gotten out of my late grandfather's loft and accidentally stumbled across it. I say accidentally stumbled across it, the folder actually fell on my head when I was lifting the box down. As I was having a cup of tea, I read about this story and instantly thought to myself, I really need to inform everyone of it. The basis of the investigation has been taken from the magazine, Real Life Crimes and How They Were Solved, with the additional information being taken from the local newspaper articles from around the time. I am unfortunately going to have to offer that warning again. The one where I have to say that this case does feature crimes against a child, so it may not be deemed suitable for all listeners, so please use your discretion. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been dedicated to the memory of Gillian Atkins. Gillian Leslie Atkins was born on the 10th of August 1968 in the town of Market Deeping, which is in the county of Lincolnshire. She was the daughter of Arnold and Elaine Atkins, and also sister to Graham. Market Deeping is an old market town and is actually one of the towns mentioned in the original Doomsday Book. For those of you who are not aware what the Doomsday Book is, it's a manuscript of the Great Survey of much of England and parts of Wales, completed in the year 1086 by the order of King William the Conqueror. The town is surrounded by acres of picturesque fields and farmland. The town itself, even in the modern day, has large stone buildings adorning its main high street, which tips its cap back to its history. Famous names linked to the town are ex-professional darts player Martin Wolfie Adams, who can regularly be seen in one of the number of country pubs dotted about the place, challenging the local drinkers to a game. Although, also on a less bright note, musician Lonnie Donegan died in the town in 2002, midway through his tour. The occupants used the River Welland, which runs through the town for traditional annual events, such as raft racing and the game of poo sticks, which is based on the A.A. Milne game played by Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore, which was first mentioned in the House of Pooh Corner book. It is a simple game, which each player drops a stick on the upstream side of the bridge, and the one whose stick first appears on the downstream side is the winner. The town of Market Deeping, even today, is the epitome of sleepy suburbia. Gillian was horse-mad and had two of her own, 
Mr. Rupert and Mr. Kendroy. Living in a small country town, it was easy for Arnold and Elaine to support their daughter's fascination with riding. Both of her ponies were stabled a short bike ride from her home. Gillian was very good with animals and people at the stables often commented on how well she looked after the ponies there. She lived a short way outside of the town, at 7 Brownlow Drive in the neighbouring Deeping Gate area. By late 1982, however, she was beginning to realise that there were other interesting things and like most girls of her age, she was starting to notice the existence of boys. She had started keeping a private journal in a diary that she had received from the Pony Club. Thursday the 14th of April 1983 started off like any other day and Gillian made her way to school. Her last class of the day was maths and she had left school with everyone else at 3.40pm. It was a warm spring day so after school she decided to take her two ponies out for a ride for about an hour. One of Gillian's school friends recalled watching her on Mr Rupert gliding majestically through the fields. The friend recalled that Gillian appeared in more of a rush that evening, cantering Mr Rupert into the field rather than walking him in like she normally did. The two teenagers shared a joke about how clean and well-kept Gillian's horses were. After taking the horse back to the stable for the night, Gillian got back on her bike and cycled the short distance to the stable where her second pony, Mr Kendroy, was kept so she could give him a bit of exercise. Gillian made sure that she was home in time for 7pm so that she could watch the BBC chart show Top of the Pops and eat a salad for dinner. On the episode that night, the performers were Sweet Dreams, Eurythmics, Bar House, Kiss in the Pink, Sunfire, Kajagoogoo, and that week's number one record, David Bowie's Let's Dance. When Top of the Pops finished, she left home on an errand for her parents to the local off-licence on Rycroft Avenue, which was about half a mile away. The clocks had gone forward on the 27th of March that year, meaning that it was still light when Gillian left. As I mentioned in the opening of the episode, Deeping is the epitome of sleeping suburbia, so there was no real concern when Gillian didn't return within the half an hour that it would have realistically taken her. As time wore on, her parents were getting more and more concerned, however. Once again, this was 1983 and there was no form of mobile technology, so the only thing that they could do was send out a search party, which they did at 9.45pm. As the search party did not bring any luck, at 10.45 Arnold Atkins travelled to the police station, which was under a mile away, and reported Gillian missing. Unlike the Rana Faruqi and Rachel Barber cases, the Lincolnshire police reacted pretty much straight away, 
and Gillian's description was radioed to every available on-duty police officer by 11.20pm. When assessing Gillian's disappearance, the police had to take into account the following factors. Had Gillian gone missing before? Or had she had an argument? As neither of these applied to the situation and the last words that Gillian had said was I won't be long, this instantly set off alarm bells at the Market Deeping police station. As it was now dark, the police were limited with what they could do, so commenced immediate local door-to-door inquiries. Behind the scenes, on the other hand, in the anticipation that these inquiries were going to fail, arrangements were being put in place for ground searches to commence at daylight, and teams of sniffer dogs were also being assembled locally. During the initial evening of inquiries, the police focused their attention on a visiting circus, which was conveniently just packing up and getting ready to leave the town. The police believed that the disappearance of Gillian on the night that a travelling show was clearing up made them the prime target for an initial search. The searches of the site and inquiries with the local travelling performers were ultimately fruitless though, with no sign that Gillian had even visited the site. The concern of Arnold and Elaine grew when the morning broke and there was still no sign of Gillian. Although they did not state it publicly, they were starting to fear the worst. The following morning, the police contacted the local media, Lincolnshire Free Press and the Stamford Mercury and notified them of the developing situation. They also got the information with regards to the disappearance to local radio stations. The lack of information by lunchtime prompted Lincolnshire Police to call upon more officers from other stations in the local area to assist in market deeping. Specialised units, including police frogmen, were called upon to search the river which flowed through the town. In the early afternoon, as the now widespread media coverage was being viewed by the people of the town, a number of sightings were being logged with the police. The most reliable of which was a sighting of Gillian by two friends near the Bell Inn pub, which was on Bridge Street at approximately 9pm. The sighting was recorded at just over an hour after she had left to go to the off-licence and was less than half a mile from her front door. At 4pm, computer control manager Mr Eric Butterworth returned to his home at 78A Church Street. The weather was the same as the day before and was a gorgeous spring afternoon warm enough to sunbathe. As he put his work bag on the table and looked out of his kitchen window at his long back garden, he saw his son's girlfriend laying in the sun amongst the fruit trees. Mr Butterworth's garden was just over 80 metres long and backed onto Church Walk, a footpath which led between two rows of rear gardens, past the local cemetery 
and towards the Priory Church of Deep in St James. Mr Butterworth called out to her a greeting and asked her if she wanted anything. But she didn't respond. Thinking this was strange, Mr Butterworth ventured out into his garden and called out again. As he got closer, he realised that it was not his son's girlfriend. The person was laying there motionless. As he got closer, he realised that the fully clothed body was that of a young girl. Mr Butterworth ran back into the house and immediately called the police. The missing persons inquiry in relation to Gillian Atkins was now a murder inquiry. The murder investigation was led by the head of Lincolnshire CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Ray Moyes, and he immediately requested that more detectives came to Market Deeping to help with the investigation. Forensic scientists and scene of crime officers had descended upon Deeping and were now working in the back of Mr Butterworth's garden. During the initial search, the team found a single wavy shoe print which did not belong to Mr Butterworth or any of the members of his family. A similar shoe print had been found on Church Walk, but there was no trace of the murder weapon and little else of any use. When the forensics team had concluded their search, DCS Moyes ensured that officers cordoned off the area so that nobody could disturb the scene. He then informed the uniform officers to complete a fingertip search of the garden to ensure that nothing had been missed. Within hours of Gillian's body being discovered, over 200 police staff were in the quiet town. DCS Moyes instructed the detectives to go out in Deeping and see what the talk of the town was. He wanted them to go out and take note of any rumours or gossip available by eavesdropping on conversations. The aim was to get any shred of information that may turn into a vital lead further into the investigation. The matter of supporting the conjecture with evidential proof at this stage was ultimately secondary, but the police were looking for a break. DCS Moyes arranged for a house-to-house questionnaire to be formulated overnight, and a squad of officers were assigned to commence this line of inquiry the following morning. Dr Peter Andrews, the Home Office pathologist, arrived in Market Deeping just after 7pm and inspected Gillian's body as it had been found. A couple of hours later, Gillian's body was taken the 10 miles to Peterborough, where Dr Andrews began the post-mortem at 9.25pm. Although it did not take him long to establish that Gillian had a severe open fracture of the skull and had died from a cerebral haemorrhage, she also showed symptoms of shock. He preserved samples that he found on Gillian's body for further forensic analysis and requested that DCS Moyes 
presented to him what he already knew. Dr Andrews revealed that although her injuries were horrific, mercifully, she would not have been conscious long enough to have been aware of the pain. Taking all of the information that had been received so far, the detective chief superintendent and the senior members of his investigation team worked overnight to work out a strategy about how to catch the killer. The discovery of Gillian had brought an eerie aura over the town. All of the children were under a strict curfew as panicked parents feared that there was a child killer on the loose. The team knew now that the murder weapon was a heavy blunt object but still had no indication of what it could be. The police divers who had painstakingly searched the bed of the River Welland had come up empty-handed. The investigation did not progress over the weekend either, with the only new piece of information being from the forensic scientists that investigated the samples collected by Dr Andrews at the post-mortem. Poor Gillian had not only suffered horrific injuries, but she had also been sexually assaulted prior to her murder. Due to the fact that he was not dealing with the loss of his daughter very well, Gillian's father Arnold was under sedation, but on Monday the 18th of April, he still made a public appeal for information. I quote, I wouldn't want any other parent to go through what we have, and I appeal to anyone who knows anything about this to get in touch with the police. Despite the appeal, a week later the police were still no closer to catching Gillian's killer. During that time, they had interviewed more than 12,000 people and visited over 3,000 homes in the area. Flyers were being circulated all over Market Deeping, Deeping St James and Deeping Gate with the following headline. Murder Gillian Atkins Five feet tall Short brown hair Brown eyes Wearing a dark donkey jacket Blue jeans Navy blue sweater with skiers on a white background across the chest. Gillian, aged 14, was found dead in the back garden of a house in Church Street, Deeping St James. At 4.35pm on Friday the 15th of April, 1983, she had been brutally assaulted. She left home in Brownlow Drive to walk to Rycroft Avenue about 7.45 on Thursday, April the 14th. She was seen between 8.45 and 9pm in Bridge Street near the Bell Hotel. Did you see Gillian on Thursday evening, April 14th? Were you in or near the area circled between 7pm Thursday the 14th and Friday the 15th, 8am. We need your help. Please contact the murder room, Market Deeping, 
348-003. The poster had a smiling picture of Gillian on the right-hand side and a circled audience survey map indicating her last known whereabouts. There had been one thing that was discovered, though, at Gillian's home. As I mentioned earlier, Gillian kept a private journal in her Pony Club diary. The police discovered through reading the entries in that diary that Gillian might actually be keeping a secret admirer from her parents. The last diary entry for Wednesday the 12th of April 1983 read as follows. Went down to the leisure centre and saw John. He asked me for a polo. Tabs thinks he likes me. Two days prior to that, she had written an entry which included the following. School. Don't want to go. Wasn't too bad. I scraped John on my arm. Gillian isn't going out with him anymore. When investigating these cryptic quotes, one of Gillian's classmates confirmed that they had seen her recklessly using the pointed end of a geometry compass to scratch John into her arm. When the police inquired further, none of Gillian's friends knew who the mysterious John was or if he even existed. Was Gillian's John a figment of her imagination or had she already met the person that would ultimately end her life. The police did, however, have one suspect. A 16-year-old boy was interviewed extensively by the investigation team, with the detectives trying to extract a confession from him. The police were basing this on intelligence that they had received, that the boy had gone out on his bike not long after the last sighting of Gillian the one at 9pm by the Bell Inn. He knew Gillian and he was described by detectives as being very cocky. The stories that he gave during his interviews proved to have a large number of holes in them. As the boy was not named publicly in the reports that I read, it is not possible to determine how he knew Gillian, but ultimately he adamantly denied the police's accusations and was willing to provide a blood sample to be compared against the bodily fluids that had been found on Gillian. These tests ultimately eliminated him from the inquiries. The police were back to having nothing. The police decided to go and take the statement of a resident of a neighbouring village who was known to them at the time. 27-year-old builder Robert France had been arrested for burglary and was, at the time, on bail pending his charging. He had been working as a bricklayer at a bungalow on the south side of the River Welland, just opposite the house in Church Street where Gillian's body had been found. The initial interview took place on Monday the 25th of April 1983 at France's home. 
He told the police that he had worked at the bungalow until tea time when his brother-in-law, Robert Winfield, drove him the nine miles to Stamford Police Station to comply with his bail conditions. He stated that he had a strict curfew of 7.30pm. He elaborated that after reporting in at the police station, he had returned back to the bungalow to lay more bricks, before again phoning his brother-in-law to pick him up so that he could be home in time to comply with the curfew. When he was asked what clothes he was wearing on the day in question, France replied, blue jeans, a t-shirt and a green, white and blue woolen hat. When this information was fed back to the incident room, it was realised that Robert France's description matched that of a man who had been seen speaking to pupils at the Deeping's Comprehensive School, which was less than half a mile from Gillian's house. This individual had also been spotted in the area of Church Walk, the path that ran behind the garden that Gillian was ultimately found in. Both of these sightings were made on the day that Gillian disappeared. France's statement had a number of discrepancies in it, including the account of what time he had got to the home of his sister and brother-in-law where he was staying on Deer Park Road in Langtoft on the night that Gillian was killed. Three weeks into the investigation, police arrested France and his brother-in-law on suspicion of murder. This is, again, my amazing audience, where I must point out the year 1983 was before DNA testing was available to law enforcement. These days, a conclusive answer would have been able to have been got with the odds of millions to one. But 36 years ago, the majority of the checks were done on blood type alone, mainly to rule people out. The authorities were able to do this with France's brother-in-law. On the other hand, forensic scientists could link France to the samples found on Gillian's body. France was held on remand pending further inquiries. This is where the investigation got a little strange for a while. A Peterborough solicitor had received a letter which claimed to be from the real killer. The content appeared to proclaim that France was innocent. Much like the Coletta Ram case in episode 4, was the killer now taunting the police? The letter read, It was not Mr France who killed that girl on the 14th of April. I was watching them making love in the garden. I want everyone to know that Mr France is not to blame for her death. Also, I want to put a part of my mind at rest. It has been on my mind and I cannot let an innocent man be responsible for my actions. Please tell Mr France that I am sorry for what I have done to his girlfriend and also what I have done to him. I now want to tell you where I put the brick 
that I have done it with. It's in an old building at the end of the pathway near where she was found. I put it under a couple of bricks. I have drawn a plan. I think the building is an old church. The envelope included a very rough hand-drawn map indicating where the murder weapon could be found. The police raced to the scene. All they knew prior to this was that Gillian had been killed with a blunt object. Now they knew what they were looking for. Although a thorough search had been conducted in the vicinity of where the body had been found, the old church was at the end of Church Walk and had been outside of the initial perimeter. When the detectives entered the building, they followed the killer's drawing just like a treasure map. And there, hidden in a shed, just as the map had told them, the team discovered a blood-stained brick. The letter contained information that only could have come from somebody who knew the intimate details of this crime. The letter was sent for forensic examination and the handwriting was compared to that of Robert France. Unfortunately again, experts were unable to conclusively say that the two matched. Again, the police had a glaring piece of evidence that pointed to France but could not conclusively pin the crime on him. That was until the letter was sent to Lincolnshire Police Senior Fingerprint Officer John Jay. Upon his examination of the document, he found the remnants of a fingerprint on the paper. He found eight characteristics that identified the print belonged to Robert France. In spite of this news though, there was still an issue. In the field of dermatoglyphics or fingerprint analysis to you and I, although eight points are enough for a fingerprint expert to positively identify a suspect, a British court of law would not accept a fingerprint identification with less than 16 identical points. Copy and paste from above, a glaring piece of evidence that pointed at France but not enough to convict him. John Jay took the letter to the Regional Forensic Science Laboratory at Huntingdon in the neighbouring county of Cambridgeshire. There, they had just begun using a newly developed laser technique for enhancing fingerprint detail. Within days of receiving the letter, the scientists were able to enhance the final eight identifying characteristics which would mean that the print would qualify as being acceptable in a court of law. The question for the police now was how did France get the letter to the solicitor? The answer was simple really. He had given the letter to his mum to post on a visit. Not knowing the content of the letter, his mum had dropped it into a post box 
giving the indication that it had been sent from the centre of Peterborough and not from Her Majesty's prison. The trial of Robert France began in November 1983 at Leicester Crown Court. The judge, Mr Justice Peter Payne, presided. Mr Ian Black QC represented the Crown Prosecution Service and Mr Desmond Perret QC defended France. The jury consisted of nine men and three women. It was at the hearing that the apparent true motive of the crime was revealed. It was theorised by Mr Black QC that France was the John character mentioned in Gillian's diaries and France had indeed started a sexual relationship with Gillian. On this occasion, however, France had not used protection. When Gillian was getting dressed again, she realised that France had not worn a condom. Mr Black QC stated, And then she began to worry. She was 14 years of age and she had consented to sex with this man and so might end up pregnant. And she went on a bit. Mr Black turned his attention to France. The thought that he might be accused of raping this girl obsessed France from start to finish of this inquiry. And bearing in mind the violently impulsive nature of the man, that is when he snapped. Having snapped, he applied excessive force, eventually battering her so persistently with the brick as to cause her death. Just a quick side note here, the legal age of consent in the UK has been 16 since 1885, so the fact that Gillian was 14, France had committed rape regardless of the consent that he believed he had. Mr Perret QC stated in France's defence that the scientific evidence proved only that his client had been in contact with Gillian, that Gillian had had a recent sexual encounter and that France had been in the garden where Gillian was found, none of which were denied by France. In fact, Perret even went on as far to say that even though France had confessed to the police, the police themselves were not convinced that France was telling the truth as he had never mentioned strangulation or hitting her with a brick. Mr Perret continued, He has almost been as clever as Agatha Christie, hasn't he? If he has been able to, in the pressures of a police station, to think up all that he was going to do in the months to come by sending an anonymous letter indicating the brick. In my submission, members of the jury, you cannot say I am sure of his guilt. Throughout the trial, France tried to accuse his brother-in-law Winfield of being the real murderer, saying that he had confessed the murder to him. When he was on the stand, however, Winfield confirmed his movements for that day. 
He confirmed that he had collected France and taken him to comply with his bail conditions. He had then taken him back to the bungalow in Deeping. Winfield said that he had mended a cement mixer on the site and left France at the bungalow at about 7.15pm and went home. He said that the next time he went out in the car was when he picked France up at the Deeping St James Road Bridge, the pair getting home at about 9.45, having driven the four miles back to their home in Langtoft. Winfield also denied any knowledge of the brick, France changing his clothes, or any blood in his kitchen. In summing up, Mr Justice Payne laid out a number of the issues raised by France in his defence for the jury to consider when they retired to deliberate. Did France and Gillian go to Church Walk on foot or did Winfield take them? Had France been careful in the act of sex with Gillian? How did the argument end? Was Gillian alive or murdered? Did France have a late-night conversation with Robert Winfield about the murder? Was it Winfield who told France where the murder weapon was? The judge also said that the jury needed to consider whether France was two steps ahead of the police in saying that he did not want a solicitor. The judge theorised that he had already thought up the idea of the anonymous letter. I quote Mr Justice Payne. The last person he would want to see is a solicitor, because a solicitor is an officer of the court. If the solicitor found out that his client was engaged in the sort of ploy that this defendant said he was engaged in, he would have to drop the case. Judge Payne continued, The defendant is a thoroughly dishonest character, wholly familiar with the criminal courts and the insides of police stations and their procedures. The 12 members of the jury unanimously found Robert France guilty of the murder of Gillian Atkins. When Mr Justice Payne passed a life sentence, France only smiled and did not show any remorse. Gillian Atkins was laid to rest in Market Deeping Cemetery. Her grave is still maintained to this day. There is a Facebook page set up in her memory, but I do request that if you do want to have a look, please do not interact with the family members on there please respect their privacy. Robert France was eventually released from prison on the 28th of April 2010 after serving 26 years. He went on to live a normal law-abiding life upon his release. Except you know that's not true. In March 2011, Robert France was imprisoned for a further five years for burglary, 
an incident that took place in October 2010, less than six months after his release. The burglary took place in an area known as Dogsthorpe, near Peterborough Centre. Prosecuting at his trial, Craig McDougall said, The couple left the address on Friday the 1st of October and returned on October 3rd to find their house had been broken into. A search revealed that the back door had been broken into in a unique way. The door is wooden and there have been a number of holes drilled into a circle and a panel punched out. France had carried out a rough search of the house and had taken computer games and jewellery items of sentimental value. He had also taken a dress belonging to the couple's granddaughter and it had been left in front of a photo of the girl in the lounge. There was two smudges of blood on that dress. Judge Nick Madge said, The placing of the dress in front of the photo would have added additional trauma to the victims. He might not have realised it at the time, but if he had thought about it, he may have realised that the trauma was an inevitable consequence. As for Gillian, she would have been 51 this year. Would she have been a mother? Would she have been a grandmother? Would her horse riding have taken her to the Olympics? Unfortunately, we will never know. All we do know is that Gillian was never given the chance to experience adulthood or have a family of her own, whilst leaving a huge void in her own family's life. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. But there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. And I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there. And this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also remember that the podcast is now on Patreon. So please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.